You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, MD, Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. I've been playing a video game lately. I'm not much of a gamer, to be honest, not since the 16-bit era, minus a few choice titles. But when quarantine hit, I thought it might be a good time to give it another try. I've been playing what seems to be the consensus on the best pirate game out there. Now, I played Assassin's Creed Four, Black Flag. I played Sid Meier's Pirates way back in the day, and I enjoyed it. And I know people love that Sea of Thieves game, but it doesn't seem to be for me. And in fact, I started playing this game long ago, but fell off it pretty quickly. This time, though, I think I'm going to stick with it. There are some things that I really enjoy about the game. First of all, it's just gorgeous. I could sail around all day listening to sea shanties. But there are a few issues I have with it. There are the characters. The main character, Kenway, I see you, Kenway, well, he's way too pretty. I mean, it is a video game, I get it, plus his wife or girlfriend or whatever is model gorgeous in 1713 Wales, so that's just the way it goes. But everyone else looks great. I met a frumpy merchant who happened to be named Steed Bonnet and got all giddy. I said, oh, I know where this is going. And then we meet Ed Teach, or they call him Thatch, and Ben Hornigold. And yeah, I wanted Blackbeard to have the braided or dreadlocked beard, or at least a bigger Blackbeard, but he'll do fine. All of those characters are fun. Then, though, we met a character who I immediately assumed to be Anne Bonny. 
She was hanging out with Blackbeard and Ben Hornigold for some reason, but that's fine. But no, it's not Anne Bonny. In fact, it's a boy. And it happens to be none other than Captain Kidd's son. And that just, well, that rubbed me the wrong way. You know, in any piece of fictional media based on real history, I'm fine with inventing characters to add into the story. But why would you so manipulate a real character, Captain William Kidd, to give them a son that they didn't have. And if you need somebody to fit a very specific story role, that's fine, but there were so many other pirates in Nassau at the time who could have fit that role, even a few youngsters if for some reason you need a boy. Now I'm not too deep into the game, and to be fair I'm still not convinced that that is in fact not a woman. The voice actress is very clearly a woman. And after all, Mary Reed, a real-world pirate, did famously dress as a man. There's clearly some mystery there, so don't spoil it for me. I'm going to keep playing. The two big complaints I have, though, they're, well, the thing that made me stop playing the first time, I don't care for the controls. They seem a bit clunky, but that's just video game stuff. The biggest problem I have is one of philosophy behind the game. It has to do with the crew of your ship, the Jackdaw. You have a quartermaster, Adelaide, who I like and I hope we get to know a lot more about. I'd like him to have a much bigger role later on in the story. But that's it. Beyond that, you don't get to know any member of your crew. You know, where's the bosun or the pilot or the cook? Who's the doctor? Who's the carpenter? Why don't we have those names? Instead, we just get this faceless mass of almost identically dressed pirates. They're a resource in the game. You have to keep them at a certain level, like their money or magic power or something of the like. They're not real people. I want to get to know them. I want to see the politics in recruiting them and the politics among the crew. The only hint of real pirate interaction I've seen on board the Jackdaw was when the captain, Kenway, insulted his men in getting them to capture a galleon. I liked the show Black Sails so much because they delved so deep into the crew. Black Flag fails there, but I understand it. I mean, last time on this show, we talked about Captain Thomas Pound alongside Thomas Hawkins and all the rest of the crew. We know that the crew was busy refitting their ship in Virginia, but we don't know much about any of those crewmen. The sources, as they so often are, are a bit lax on the subject. The only time we really get to know much about the crew of any pirate ship is when we have a fairly decent first-hand account, like that of William Dampier or Ravno de Luzon. And we're not going to rectify that problem today. We do know quite a bit about many members of the crew under Thomas Pound, but not what they were doing during the story. And what we know about them could help me fill in those blanks, but I feel kind of gross doing that without some kind of historical documentation. For example, there was a crewman named Thomas Johnston. He was, in our story, a crewman of some repute. We've met him before. Johnston was the limping privateer. But aside from that mention, we don't get a lot about his actions. At least not until the pirates encounter the official record. So we're going to wait to really introduce them until those pirates run into men in Puritan robes who took down their names. 
We left those pirates as the wind carried them back north to New England, where a host of hostile ships, some of them privately owned ships searching for a reward, others commandeered by the government, and still others colonial navy ships, waited for the pirates. This is episode 169, Thomas Pound, part 2. You know those little slip-ups, those little embarrassing mistakes that seem to just cycle through your head whenever you're trying to go to sleep? For example, there's the time that, very early on in doing this show, I referred to the bow of a ship as a ship's bow. Now, I know the difference, and I knew the difference then, but I misspoke. I was still new to the game. But this time, there's really no good excuse. I told you that Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins and the rest of the crew captured the ship Good Hope, and that's not the case. They captured the ship Good Speed. We would, in modern parlance, call it the Godspeed, more likely. But that's embarrassing for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Godspeed has a legacy in the very earliest attempts to colonize America. But it's even more embarrassing because the Good Hope will be a ship later on that we will encounter, a ship important to the story of pirates, just not this ship. So that happened, and I apologize, but let's roll with those punches and move on with Thomas Pound on board the Good Speed. We don't know when the Good Speed arrived in New England after their sojourn in Virginia. We do know, though, that the people of New England were well prepared. A price had been put on Thomas... Well, I was going to say Thomas Pound's head, but that's only kind of accurate. The price was on Thomas Hawkins' head. As you may have noticed from all of the official dispatches we have read, Thomas Pound was always a second thought, with the rest of the crew lagging far behind. Hawkins, whose ship was the first to engage in piracy on this little venture, was assumed to be the captain. Pound, who was a known naval commander in the region, was assumed to be his pilot and probably second in command. As it happens, they had it backward, but they were figuring it out. The price on Hawkins' head was announced shortly after Captain Smart delivered the message given by Thomas Pound. You'll remember, quote, If ye government sloop come out after them, they should find hot work, for they would die every man before they would be taken. End quote. It was a threat, and it was one that the people of New England heard. That bounty motivated a number of privately owned ships to go out hunting the pirates. The colonial navies, and really it's kind of grandiose to call them navies at all, the colonial ships that were capable of fighting were readied to set out, but they stayed in port for the time being. There they would stay until reliable information about the good speed arrived on their desks. The governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Simon Bradstreet, ordered the sloop of war Mary readied for a voyage. And you may remember the Mary. After Thomas Pound lost the HMS Rose, the Sally Rose, in that battle with George Peterson, Governor Andros raised a tax to build the Mary. Thomas Pound was her first captain until, of course, he was removed from service in that purge of Navy men loyal to King James, the aftermath of the Glorious Revolution. Now, part of the problem there 
The reason that he was even able to be removed as captain was because the Mary was owned by the colony of Massachusetts Bay. It was not owned by the Crown. The governor had the authority to appoint or remove captains at will. He didn't have to ask the Navy's permission. Now Mary cycled through captains after Pound was dismissed, but that was by design. One man might serve for a few months and then another, and then another, and then maybe the first man again. Now, I don't really see the benefit in doing things that way. You lose a lot of institutional memory among the officers on board. The men who know all the little idiosyncrasies of the ship are taken away. I assume there were probably some sort of politics being played in that. But in the summer of 1689, when good speed arrived back in New England bearing the pirates, Captain Samuel Pease was in command over the Mary. Pease is an interesting character. He was born in Edgartown, Massachusetts in 1655, and Pease was a colonial. Through and through, that's who he was. What little we know about him kind of embodies that early American contradiction. He was loyal to the crown, but not necessarily to the king. It didn't matter to him who sat the throne as long as England was strong. He was a subject of the motherland who probably never saw English shores. He was a defender of the English Empire internationally. He fought the French and the Spanish and the Dutch at different times, sometimes multiple times, and was happy to do so. But he was firmly of the belief that the crown, which he did support, should keep their noses out of colonial business. Early America was kind of weird. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But Pease readied the Mary for a voyage. He and his lieutenant, a man named Benjamin Gallup, collected a cask of powder and fifty pounds of shot, as well as all the paper and match and tackle necessary for a voyage that would likely end in a battle. Mary was a small ship, though, 120 tons and only six guns. Her crew was made up of only twenty volunteer seamen. 
She was a sloop of war, but a sloop nonetheless. However, she was well prepared given her size. But all the while she waited in port. The first word we have of Goodspeed's arrival in New England comes from a merchant out of Jamaica, a man named William Lord. His brigantine carried Jamaican sugar bound for Boston, and one evening he put in at Tarpaulin Cove on the south side of Nashon Island. That's one of the Elizabeth Islands in the Martha's Vineyard Sound. There was a well-armed ship already there in Tarpaulin Cove. Soon enough, that ship sent a boat over to meet with Captain Lord. Now, the captain, the Jamaican, had no idea who any of these men were. He'd never seen them, nor had he heard of them. But they seemed friendly enough. Certainly not the sort to be pirates, right? They wanted to trade him for an anchor. They told him that they'd lost theirs in a storm, a nor'easter, a few weeks earlier. Lord agreed to the deal. He gave them an anchor in return for a bit of sugar to add to his cargo. He also noticed that they had a slave, and he offered to buy him for twelve pounds sterling. This suggests to me that Captain Lord may have suspected that these men were not exactly on the up and up. The pi- the, uh, upstanding merchants agreed to the sale. Now we know this happened thanks to later court records, but Captain Lord didn't have any reason to sail off to the colonial authorities. He didn't report this interaction until word of Thomas Pound became much bigger news. As yet, the authorities in New England were uninformed of Pound's presence. But on Sunday the 21st of September 1689, Thomas Pound attempted his first piratical act since arriving back in New England. He spotted a catch off of Martha's Vineyard and gave chase, but the catch was quick. She ran for it and made it into Martha's Vineyard Harbor. Still, the pirates didn't give up. They followed the catch into the harbor, intending to capture her there in port. It was bold, but, you know, it's not like Martha's Vineyard had a couple of forts guarding the harbor. They did, however, have ships and men with guns. When good speed got in close, the pirates saw an unnerving sight. The deck of the catch that they chased into the harbor was filled with men, many more than had been on board a few minutes earlier. They all bore muskets and sabers and axes and pitchforks, anything that would be needed to defend their ship. Beyond that, there were two ships on either side of the catch waiting in the harbor similarly filled with well-armed men. And all three of these ships had their guns trained directly at good speed. Now, they only had six guns. That's not a lot of firepower. But six guns on three separate ships is more dangerous than six guns on a single ship. That means that two ships could continue firing even if you sank one of them. The pirates beat a hasty retreat. That's the polite way of saying they ran like hell. After this incident, they sailed for Cape Cod, and once there, Thomas Hawkins took some men and a boat ashore to collect wood and water. That's not out of the ordinary at all, especially since they were reportedly preparing for a voyage across the Atlantic. They would need those kind of supplies. And a few hours passed, and a couple more, and even more, and then the men returned, but Thomas Hawkins was not with them. According to those men who did return, he'd abandoned the pirates. He deserted the good speed. In later testimony, Thomas Hawkins told the court that this was his very first opportunity to escape the pirates, which we know, according to the testimony of others, 
to be untrue. Upon hearing the testimony, the court laughed at his claims, but to his credit, Thomas Hawkins did stick to his story of woe and capture. After abandoning the pirates, Thomas Hawkins hiked down the beaches of Cape Cod for several hours, and then he spotted a boat on the horizon, on the beach. It had some men idling nearby. He introduced himself. They were Nancy fishermen. I'll read the passage by George Dow in Pirates of the New England Coast. He writes, quote, The Nancet men made short work of Hawkins, and after fleecing him thoroughly, turned him loose to shift for himself. End quote. Hawkins was eventually picked up by a friendlier sailor, a man named Captain Jacobus Loper. Loper told the Boston authorities that Hawkins called those brigands, quote, a parcel of rogues, and if he got clear at Boston from this trouble that was now on him, as he did not question he should, he would be revenged on them for their base dealing, for they were worse pirates than pound. End quote. Despite his claims that he would absolutely get clear of these troubles, Hawkins was an innocent man, after all. Thomas Hawkins begged Captain Loper, when Boston was finally in sight, to change course, to take him to Salem instead. There was a Dutch rover sitting in the harbor there on which Hawkins could book passage far from English habitation. He lost his nerve as they approached Boston. He wanted to get away. Instead of aiding Hawkins in his escape, Loper turned him over to the magistrate there in Boston. In the meantime, though, Thomas Pound moved on from this desertion. No pirate should ever be bound to any ship or crew should they choose to leave. And of course it did not actually work out like that all the time, but that was the theory. Goodspeed found herself on the hunt for one last crucial ingredient for their voyage across the Atlantic. They had the guns they needed, they had powder and shot and wood and water, and they had a good amount of food. But the pirates searched for one thing they lacked. Salted pork. The salted pork is particularly good. Salted pork. <sighs> Hobbits. I may make light of it, but salted pork was an important ingredient for any trip that would be at sea very long. The pirates, though, were very single-minded in this purpose. They stopped two ships that were filled with relatively valuable cargo, sugar and the like. But when Pound searched the ships and found that the, the salted, salted pork, pork was not forthcoming, he just let them go with all their cargo intact. The captains were perplexed. They expected to lose their cargo and maybe their ships and maybe their livelihood, but instead it's just, where's the salted pork? Finally, though, one of those ships that Pound searched for his beloved salted pork, salted pork. landed in Boston. They told the tale of this pirate on the search for his... treasure. The same day that that ship landed in the harbor at Boston, the 29th of September, the governor of New York, Matthew Mayhew, arrived on his way to England. He stopped off at Boston to tell the Bostonians about Pound's presence in Tarpaulin Cove. These two pieces of news, one arriving on the heels of the other, was proof enough for the governor that Pound was out there, and it was time. On the 30th, the Council of Massachusetts agreed to send out Captain Pease in his ship the Mary. When the Mary arrived there at Topolin Cove, the pirates were already gone. There was nary a sight of them. 
The crew was frustrated. They had hoped to catch the pirates in the act. But later that day, a local fisherman rode over with news. He'd spotted the good speed only the day before at a place called Wood's Hole. From there, we have an excellent account, a first-hand testimony of what happened. It's an account given by the first mate, the lieutenant of Captain Pease, Benjamin Gallop. It's a fascinating and well-written piece of history, so I'd like to read it to you. It's a long passage, though, so buckle in. He writes, shortly after that fisherman arrived with the news, quote, Upon which we presently gave a great shout, and the word was given to our men to make all ready which was accordingly done, the wind being south-southeast and blew hard. Quickly after we were all ready, we espied a sloop ahead of us. We made what sail we could, and quickly came so near that we put up our king's jack. Our sloop sailing so very well, we quickly came within shot, and our captain ordered a great gun to be fired thwart her forefoot. On that, a man of theirs presently carried up a red flag to the top of their mainmast and made it fast. Our captain then ordered a musket to be fired thwart his forefoot. He not striking, we came up with him, and our captain commanded us to fire on them, which, accordingly, we did, and also called them to strike to the King of England. Captain Pounds, standing on the quarter-deck with his naked sword in his hand, flourishing, said, Come aboard, ye dogs, and I will strike you presently, or words to that purpose. His men standing by him, with their guns in their hands on the deck, he taking up his gun, they let fly a volley upon us, and we again at them. At last we came to leeward of them, supposing it to be some advantage to us, because the wind blew so hard, and our weather side did us good. They, perceiving this, gave several shouts, supposing, as we did apprehend, that they would yield to them. We still fired at them, and they at us as fast as they could load and fire. In a little space we saw Pounds was shot and gone off the deck. While we were thus in the fight, two of our men met with a mischance by the blowing up of some gunpowder, which they, perceiving by ye smoke, we being pretty near them, gave several shouts and fired at us as fast as they could. We many times called to them, telling them if they would yield to us we would give them good quarter. They utterly refusing to have it, saying, Aye, ye dogs, we will give you quarter by and by. We still continued our fight having two men of our men wounded. At last our captain was much wounded so that he went off the deck. The lieutenant quickly ordered us to get all ready to board them, which was readily done. We laid them on board presently, and at our entrance we found such of them that were not much wounded very resolute. But discharging our guns at them, we forthwith went to club it with them and were forced to knock them down with the butt-end of our muskets. At last we quelled them, killing four and wounding twelve, two remaining pretty well. The weather coming on very bad, and, being desirous to get good doctors or surgeons for our wounded men, we shaped our course for Rhode Island, and the same night we secured our prisoners and got in between Pocasset and Rhode Island. The next day, being Saturday, the 5th of October, we got convenient house for our wounded men, got them on shore, and sent away to Newport for doctors, who quickly came and dressed them. Our captain being shot in the arm and in the side and in the thigh lost much blood and continued weak and faint, and on Friday after, being the eleventh day of October, he being on board intending to come home, we set sail, and were come but a little way before he was taken with bleeding afresh, so that we came to an anchor again and got him on shore to another house on Rhode Island, where he continued very weak 
In the afternoon, he was taken with bleeding again and with fits. He continued that night, and losing so much blood, on Saturday morning, the 12th of October, departed this life. We buried him at Newport, in Rhode Island, the Monday following. That Monday at night, we set sail from Rhode Island and arrived at Boston on Saturday, the 18th of October, with fourteen prisoners. The bloody flag was not put above Pounds' vessel before we fired at them. End quote. It was a bloody skirmish that was fought between the men of the Mary and the Good Speed. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to read a first-hand account of a sea battle, something we've seen rarely in such depth on this show, although we will get to see many more of them in the future. Captain Pease was dead, but Captain Pound was very much alive. He and the rest of his crew, those left alive, were reunited with none other than Thomas Hawkins in the dungeons of the fort at Boston. We're going to leave it there for today. Next time we're going to discuss the trial of Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins and the rest of the crew, and we're going to see how the aftermath of this battle intersected with politics at large and the rest of the world. Salted pork. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilly. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.